Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Here's the thing, Charles. It's not a dream if it's real. So says Moira McTaggart. She says this in year one of the dream. That's some time before the world in year 10, the war in year 100, or the ascension in year 1000. Of course, no one knows what the fuck any of that means at all. Not the least of which is me, Nico, your host, here on Uncanny X's for Podcast, a powerhouse special edition. There would be no Uncanny X's for Podcast without my one true guy, my Jonah. Hello, everyone. I am actually not at a carnival right now. I'm here recording this podcast. Yeah, though, you know, depending on the location of the nearest gateway, you could be there as fast as you needed to. Speaking of people who might have to travel through a gateway to get here, we have the incredible Warpath Dylan on the ones and twos. Hello. Compared to Jonah, I think he would be in year one, the dream, and I'm probably in year 100, the war. Awesome. Oh, life's hard, buddy. <laughs> You know, Kyle, Kyle, who's here with us, Kyle, if you want, you can either be, no, Kyle, you should be in year 10 because I want to be the one with the freaky eyes in year 1000. And I think you'd be really freaked out if your eyes looked like that. Yeah, I would definitely be really freaked out by that. I could probably rock a helmet though. I fucking love this helmet. And like, I can't wait to cosplay this helmet. I'm like obsessed with this helmet. I love this helmet. This helmet is fucking ridiculous, and I love it. Did I say I love the helmet yet? Like, I want this helmet, and I want a Zorn helmet. So, like, I need a Zorn helmet, and I need, uh, we're gonna call this Krakoan Xavier helmet. I need it. Love the helmet. Sorry. Didn't mean to freak out. We are, of course, talking about House of X and Powers of Ten here on Powerhouse, an uncanny X-Men special edition. We are talking today about the second issue of The Dawn of X. We've already discussed House of X number one by John Hickman and Pepe Larraz. And now we're here to talk about Powers of Ten number one by John Hickman and R.B. Silva. This is some weird fucking thing. Okay, I want to do a quick rundown. We have X-Men coming out of pod things. And now there's six Krakoan things we need to know about. There's three drugs, human drug L, I, and M which are longevity, immunity, and mental health, right? Then there's gateway flowers, which is you plant one in a third-party location and a matching flower remains on Krakoa and they create a direct gateway one to another, which take evidently some time to root and that is important to keep in mind. There are also habitats, which are biomes that connect via gateways to central Krakoa, which is known as Krakoa Pacific, which does not make up the full body of Krakoa anymore. Now that there are habitat biomes connected by gateways, Krakoa is an idea that has been destabilized as a location. The physical location is known as Krakoa Pacific, while the bigger idea is known as Krakoa Entire, or just Krakoa. Xavier has yet to take off this fantastic new helmet 
helmet, though he sure seems to have a lot of plans. Magneto is now one of his ambassadors and has his own location in Krakoa Pacific, known as the House of M, while Xavier runs things over in the House of X, which is evidently Lakeside, where many of the students live. Krakoa has turned into a habitat with amnesty, a sovereign nation where any mutant can go to get safety and hope, it would seem. Even the mystique, Sabretooth, and Toad brotherhooding about and being up to no good is ultimately going to have a deeper meaning. So we are looking at some weird fuck. Oh, and there's and there's space sentinels that want to blow everyone up. And there's sneaky drug kingpin bastard people who are like, I'm going to turn on my government and use my own drug money. And by drugs, I mean pharmaceuticals. And 100% of this has been 98% crazy and 2% what the fuck am I reading? And I've loved every minute of it. And I'm so glad to have you guys back with me. For those of you who are unfamiliar, because you've joined just for this Powerhouse Special Edition, Jonah has been covering Uncanny with me for some time. Kyle covered the champions. And now we have Dylan on Dazzler and Defenders. And I called them all together because they all kind of represent different bases of knowledge, and I would not want to talk about this without them. Let's just talk for a moment about some of our favorite X things. I am obsessed with Jean Grey and Wolverine. I also put Captain Britain and Pete Wisdom pretty high on that list too. I'm faithfully going to always bring up how much I love Jean. I'm going to bring up Cable and Jean and Logan and Jean and Captain Britain and Jean. That sounds that sounds like my list. Hey, Jonah, who are some of your favorite X-Men? Well, obviously, he's the whole reason we started this whole podcast and project, being Nightcrawler. I have very much fell in love with Kitty Pride, as she, currently where we are covering it in on X's for Podcasts, is she's the new kid in the block, and she's changing the face of the X-Men, and she's putting everything on their heads. I'm also a very big old Emma Frost fanboy stan. There's nothing I could do about my love for her. She's just so... Listen, I am a young gay man, and I look up to the powerful, domineering, scantily clad blonde woman who is so broken and is just so it's so unfortunate i just want good things to happen for her and it's so unfortunate bad things always happen to emma recently kevo asked us who our favorite x-men were and jonah said that it was emma and we both kind of snickered a little bit and he was like why are you snickering and we were like because we love her despite her like at the same time in the same tone it was pretty amazing uh warpath dylan I don't think you have a favorite X-Man, do you? <laughs> I'm, of course, obsessed with Orpath and a slightly lesser known character to people who may not be up to date in the 90s of X-Men or current, but I'm obsessed with M or Monet, but... Oh, I love Monet so much. If you want to get your hands on some excellent Monet, get your hands on Peter David's later X-Factor run. Oh, Monet's so great. She's the perfect mutant. If you don't like her, you should just not be listening to this podcast. Kyle, Kickity Kyle, tell me, which X-Men do you kick it with, Kickity Kyle? I'm definitely a huge Kitty fanboy, mostly because she also brings us Lockheed, and she's amazing. I also really love modern-day Bobby Drake, and I'm kind of falling in love with Betsy Braddock again. 
This has been like the age of Psylocke. Every choice they have made from unproblematicifying her to some of the things we're not going to talk about just yet, but we have some ideas of what she's going to be doing post Dawn of X. And I am, I am extraordinarily excited for the incredible era of Psylocke we are setting up for. However, before that, it seems like we have about a thousand years we need to take a look at. And I am so fucking fascinated by Moira's part in all of this. Moira McTaggart is a human being who somehow managed to die of the legacy virus, which only affected mutants. Here she is, a human, somehow deeply related to whatever's going on with Krakoa. This isn't the first time that Moira McTaggart has been associated with some amount of genetic tampering when it comes to mutants, see X-Men 1 through 3, or reality altering, see her own child. But this is some extreme version of this, and I'm just so fascinated. Jonah, when you first met Moira, we said that her mutant power was screaming that she is a machine gun. Is this machine gun Moira? No, this actually isn't really Machine Gun Moira. This is a Koi Moira who kind of actually has her own plan of doing things. Well, we have really no other information as to where Moira fits into this puzzle. Moira kind of knows what everything's going on, but Charles doesn't seem to know what's going on in this year. Charles doesn't seem like himself. He kind of just seems like somebody's controlling Charles's vessel and he's just walking around enjoying a carnival. But Moira knows what's going on and she seems fully aware of what Charles's new dream is. And it's really, really just more confusing. I'll, what I would describe these two issues as is not just puzzle pieces to one larger puzzle we're getting puzzle pieces to multiple puzzles which are in and of themselves pieces to a larger puzzle i completely agree with that and one of the things that's bizarre to me is i don't know where in time this like i don't understand how this works how does this moira who's our moira is that always our is this our moira like i don't know because we're told this isn't time travel we're told this is straightforward fucking moira i just can't even begin to parse this. So, Kyle, Moira is such a central part of Claremont's vision for the X-Men and his reimagining of Xavier's dream from 1975 in a way that reverberates all the way through her untimely death in Dream's End around Uncanny 389. This Moira is more in line with comic Moira, I'd say, than movie Moira, but what were your takeaways on her? This Moira seems odd. It's like she knows something that nobody else does. And because of the way that this entire segment of the story seems so... We can't place it in time. I'm unsure exactly what's going on. And she's just... It's like she's adding more mysteries to a pu to the puzzle instead of making any kind of solution. Especially because the parts she's adding seem to be him reading her mind. She doesn't seem to be actively doing something. Dylan, I actually really loved their stilted conversation. I thought everything about it was really genuine to two people meeting each other. But the most important takeaway from that conversation is the fortune-telling cards of the magician, the tower, and the devil. When we finally got an answer on who or what these characters were, to some extent here, and we got this bit that does tie to the future, how did you feel getting this super sort of asynchronous bit of information? I liked the little bit of foreshadowing plus with a combination of the moira that seems like she knows what's happening while the rest of us don't it's like we mentioned with house of x there's a whole lot of mysteries and i'm just really enjoying the ride 
Enjoying the ride. I love that. So if you do know me a little bit personally, you know that I am a huge Persona fanboy. And part of the Persona's whole shtick and part of its appeal is using the tarot cards and the symbolism of what the different cards mean. Now, the symbolism of using these three cards is pretty interesting. And it's really specifically the use of the tower and the devil. The tower often represents something of a bad omen that when the tower collapses, there's a huge catastrophic event going to happen. And the use of the devil of someone who's doing things that they possibly quite not want to be doing. Devil doesn't actually mean someone evil, but it can represent somebody who's doing stuff that maybe goes against their character or they're holding on to a guilt of some sort. And I think this kind of fits for what's about to happen with the future of this story. I love that read on it. I know that I was definitely fascinated by these cards. The Tower is one of those cards in mysticism that comes up a lot. Even people with a very baseline understanding of tarot cards and divination like to bring up the tower because it's one of those interesting situations where it essentially means you lose no matter what. And so people love to go to that one. The magician, the devil, these are also tarot cards, but seeing them represent these characters really caught my attention. Jonah, when you saw the magician, the tower, the devil, we kind of saw what Rasputin, or this character that we would come to know is named Rasputin, this character we would come to know is named the Cardinal. How did you feel getting some kind of answer on these mutants, even though it's in this like form of mysticism? It's pretty interesting because... By representing these characters by a card, it can give a lot about their personality based on what the the divination and the mysticism meaning of those cards are. Those cards could represent so many different facets of the personality. And a very important distinction is these cards are in the upright position as opposed to the downright position, which means that they would be the opposite of those cards. But the use of these cards can give us information about who these characters are without actually having them physically appear yet. So I really do appreciate that of giving characterization of what to expect of these characters. Kyle, I loved the colors on these pages. I thought everything from the greens to the purples and the yellows, I thought it all really popped. And I think telling the story in as many colored segments as they did really added something. Did the art stand out for you here? I thought the art was just really beautiful. It really is. I mean... You, you get so much conveyance of emotion, of reaction to what the characters are saying to each other. And even just when you see Charles reading Moira's mind, and then all of a sudden he realizes what happens and the colors change. It's just... So much is told through color. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, it's just... It's... I, the colors, they're just... Yeah. It's spellbinding. <laughs> Sorry. It really is. It's spellbinding. It's incredible how we saw the severity of the red in the House of X logo that here for Powers of X is kind of muted down. They changed the logo from that really intense, really bright red to a grayscale. And I think that says a lot too, especially contrasted with the bright shininess of the past and this sort of darker future, or I guess present. This brings us back to the Mystique storyline with whatever she was stealing. And it turns out she was stealing it for Xavier and Magneto. I thought this exchange was fascinating. Did anybody else really think that the Xavier Mystique Magneto sequence, other than born of the success of the movie franchises, was super powerful too? I did. When it comes to Mystique and Magneto's being in the same panels, 
I like how this is written to show that Mystique isn't just necessarily doing what Eric or Charles want her to do. It seems like she still has her own voice, too. And I kind of hope that comes to play in more issues. I agree. I've always found the idea of putting Magneto and Mystique together really reductive on Mystique because Mystique is as much a leader as Eric's ever been. And I think it's that the films cast her as the female bad guy that led to this whole Mystique works for Magneto bullshit, which I don't care for. And so seeing her challenge Magneto really made me happy. But there's something about that inherent contradiction where Charles is like, no, you should be happy just to help other mutants. And Mystique's like, well, I'm not. And Charles is like, you know what? Okay, fine. I'm going to want things from you. And Mystique's like, what happened to helping other mutants? And Charles is basically like, we all help Krakoa. And I'm like, oh my, you're a scary little bald man in a helmet. Jonah, were you scared of the little bald man in the helmet? I want to say this. We don't even know if he's bald right now. What if he has full luscious locks of hair? What if that's actually the shock that he just has like crazy Prince Valiant hair? That's why the helmet is so big. It has to cover up all of that hair. It's full of secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Where I've met Mystique right now in Uncanny, she's not that important she kind of you know plotted to assassinate a governor which is pretty big but it was pretty interesting to see all three of these characters who tend to either work tangentially with one another at some point or another or are within their vicinity and not quite our enemies and not quite our friends and they're not really frenemies they kind of just work doing their own thing sometimes they happen to coincide with with one another but it's really unsettling is the word we constantly keep throwing around for these episodes that charles almost switches on a dime on what he believes and it's just weird because i don't know that i think charles is out of character number one as much as i think john hickman is a genius i do find that he tends to write a lot of characters with the same very flat voice i'm okay with it i like the voice but it is notable especially here that magneto kind of sounds like xavier kind of sounded like scott last episode the only person that's sounding really unique is gene but i wonder if that's because gene is always in her head before she's always in yours. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're a young ice man. So I think this is really the last pages in year 10. Did anybody have any parting thoughts before we fast forward to year 100? I still don't know what's going on. I'm so confused. <laughs> you know, I, th- I believe that makes four of us. I so- was a little confused with that last panel or panels of Xavier and Mystique because it kind of looked like Xavier was using telekinesis to take that thing out of her hand. Yeah. Oh, oh, believe me, that is in my notes that Xavier seems to use telekinesis. I thought that was very interesting and very telling of the statement that Omega level mutants are Krakoa's greatest resource. I wonder if housing the mutants in the pods maybe allowed them to copy powers out or something. Because as we're about to jump forward, breeding mutants to specific ends does become a major thing, especially getting certain powers from certain people. And that makes more sense with having just seen that list of Omega level abilities. And not only does it seem like Helmet Xavier can use telekinesis, but it seems like Krakoa is able to psychically respond to him, creating tree-like repositories as needed. And I really want to know more about this fucking helmet, man. Or at least what's under it, other than gorgeous blonde hair.
when we get to the X-Men in year 100, shit's weird, man. Number one, these like spindly super mega fuck all like leper queen mega sentinels are running around, right? Dylan, did you notice that there was like elements of like the leper queen in this? Yes, that was like the first thing that I noticed when they showed these human and sentinels i was like uh why do they have helmets very similar to uh x-men villain the leopard queen and especially because she was in that whole sentinel squad one era this has a lot of resonance to that for me i think a lot of this is very fast-paced and very hardcore and we're trying to download a lot of language very quickly Silabelle was bred in the kennels which are spelt strangely and some sort of black ops telepath and then we get that Rasputin and Cardinal were designed and planting the black seed of Krakoa and you know there's so much that they're just trying to give us a fun action sequence they're trying to keep the story moving and as much as I enjoy the action sequence here with Rasputin, Cardinal, Silabel, and the recently deceased Percival, I'm probably more interested than anything in the Sinister Line pages, the Mutant Breeding Program, the Chimera Program, the Outliers of the Chimera Program, and the Betrayal. I thought so much of that was fascinating. And once again, talking about how the image in the box changes. Now that we're no longer talking about the X-Men and we're talking about Mr. Sinister, the symbol in the box that has replaced the X is Sinister's forehead diamond. And there is just so much painstaking care put into telling this story. The production value alone is just off the fucking charts. And I personally thought the Sinister breeding camps were a lot like... I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about Rasputin and Cardinal and Silabel and Percival and Sentinels and taking baths. And it was a lot of language all at once. Kyle, I think your main thing you've said so far is I'm confused, but intrigued, but in, but confused, but excited, but confused. And I have to imagine jumping to year 100, the war, probably threw you off a little bit. It did. We went from a time frame where things seemed to be kind of idealistic, where there was a lot of hope, but things also felt weird, to this incredibly horrible time frame where everything's falling apart and it's just, it seems like all hope is gone, except for these little bubbles of no space or no place no place no place no place yeah i think we're really starting to get like so many levels of the story and i the more i look at some of these characters the more i'm fascinated because i noticed on rasputin that she also has danny moonstar's hair braids i just noticed that myself I notice so many things like and now I wonder how much I keep assuming that she's Colossus but what if there's some she's a metamorph what if there's some element of Paige Guthrie in there Dylan so much is happening so on top of itself what were your main takeaways from this like 10 page fight sequence I love the fact I'm a weirdo when it comes to sentinels I love sentinels I liked seeing these new weird shaped ones but when it got to like the second page of this weird dark future seeing the mainstay of the big giant sentinels that makes me happy for some weird reason i did like this few pages but it did kind of seem a little repetitive because i feel like anytime we jump to a dystopian future there's always sentinels right off the bat and two or three mutants fighting them not to be the debbie down 
I get it. A lot of times these fight sequences do get a little repetitive, and that's why I think we started to see a lot more focus on the psychology of it. Jonah, what was it like dialing into this fight sequence 20 years and 100 years ahead of where you're at? I actually think it's pretty interesting. I do agree with Dylan that maybe they could have went a different direction than just using Sentinels because that is one cliche you can maybe stay away from for the X-Men and their time jumps. But I guess it's just really interesting because we have Ratsputin and she's the combination of three iconic X-Men that we can see and maybe even more. And it's her determination to save Sila Bell and to save her friend that's really interesting in that she doesn't care about her own safety because she kind of knows she's invincible and that she's one of the most powerful mutants that there possibly could be because she's such a mix of so many different mutants that she has to save her friend and she gets so devastated when she's unable to. It's really disheartening for this character. It's really interesting to also see how Cardinal fits into this and how he's much different In fact, he even goes on to say later on that he is genetically designed to be incapable of violence. I wish somebody had given that note to the makers of the Dark Phoenix movie instead of having Kurt murder a bunch of people on a train, but what the fuck do I know? I also want to go on the record as saying there is something brilliant about the fact that last issue, Magneto said mutants have never had a war, they've never come for anyone, and they've never tried to extinguish anyone. And now we're literally put in something called the Mutant War. And the more it comes into focus, the more we come to see, even in this situation, mutants are the victims of a hyperaggression. More fascinating for me is that we're told that the lost years of the Krakoan Great Period are because the remaining mutant leadership, after a great amount of their greatest leaders disappeared, trusted Sinister. Who the fuck trusts Sinister? I wrote that down as one of my notes, too. (laughs) No one would trust him. You know, Sinister, uh, who psychologically tortured and maybe sexually abused Scott when he was a kid. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, I'm sure everybody thought to themselves, Hey, he wears a lot of makeup and has very pointy teeth. We should trust him. Kyle, I know you're maybe not as caught up on Mr. Sinister and haven't read every single one of his disturbing, disgusting genetic experiments, but in the 20 issues here and 20 issues there you've read of him, I feel like even you would be like, don't trust the pointy man with the black teeth! It's true. Wow. Yeah, that page was like, wow, were they really that desperate to trust him to try to save them? Essentially, he recreates Days of Future Past's hound program, but instead using aggressive and military mutants. What's fascinating is his Generations of Chimera really beautifully mirrors the Celestials hosts and the great seeds of the Celestials, in which they had to be restarted multiple times, resulting in the Eternals, the Deviants, humans, etc. We get that the first generation was pretty neat, worked out, and after 16 years, they went and defended Krakoa till it fell. We find out that the second generation was pretty good at just, like, mixing two mutants together, so just kind of like, you know, yin-yang, but like a super mutant, right? And then you find out the third group of Chimeras were, like, real, real crazy, and it was, like, up to five mutants! Everybody gets tough! And a bunch of them went crazy. And then it turns out the fourth generation were filled with a psychic hive mind virus that led to the death of 40% of living mutants. And so they black holed themselves on Mars. 
I want to take a note into the details of them talking about the sample chimera Rasputin. Now, it's no shock that she would have Kitty and Rasputin DNA in her, and I think specifically she would have Colossus, because it says metamorphosis, and I'm not, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe that's Ileana's power, even though she has her sword. But also, interestingly enough, there's Quentin Choir DNA. Kinney is Laura Kinney. That's X-23's healing factor. I'm pretty sure it's Eunice. Oh, Eunice the Untouchable. Eunice the guy who can't eat. We just read a story where he couldn't eat, so Hulk beat him up. That wasn't exactly true, but... (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's rude. It was... But it's really interesting to see how Rasputin was created and who was chosen for her DNA and where their mutant powers lie on a chromosome and that no power lines up so it all mixes together well to make one mutant that's, dare I say, actually invincible. This also makes me think of what generation would Cardinal be? His very obvious basis is Kurt, but where does he fall into this? So Cardinals come from the third generation. Generation three had a 10% failure rate, where in spite of their being bred for war, these mutants developed passive peacetime power sets. They became obsessed with creation myth and religion and reject the idea of personal identity and refuse to have individual names and all called themselves Cardinal. Fascinating, but I still want to know who is in his dna besides kurt who did, who else does he have because even though he says he was basically bred and created that he can't be hostile he can still have hostile mutant and aggressive mutant powers yeah i'm puzzled by so much on this the one thing i will say is the last lines on the page are sinister was publicly executed by the man machine supremacy after defecting and in my notes i wrote good <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but now here's where things get kind of uh weird. And so, yeah, this is where things get weird. But they also, things also do get cute in a weird way. In a weird way! So is it just me or is Nimrod, like, dating Karima? And do they live in the tower? Well, right now he's... Nimrod the Lesser. So, yeah, maybe he is into dating right now because he has a full body and he's not a future just helmet floating around. I kind of feel like we should call him Baymax instead of Nimrod because he is adorable in these next few panels. Oh, he is? Okay. Can we call him Nimmax or Bayrod? All I know is that I need is a plushie. I need him as a plush. Oh, and I need a cranky little Karima to be his friend. So (laughs) they get their hands on Silabelle and Nimrod's like, I'm real sorry that I made you to kill people. Well, kill your own kind. That wasn't very nice. And Silabelle is like, you're gross. And he's like, I'm sorry. And Karima's like, you're being much too nice. And Bayrod (laughs) is like, but I want friends. Let's give her a bath. And everybody's like, eh, the bath, the bath. And I'm like, what is the fucking bath? And then they tell us what the bath is, and it is fucked up. They boil mutants down into information on DNA to make robo like people. They store all that information that they could put into their AI, but also clone that mutant if they so choose to. Really fucked up. Yeah, it's like, this is, this is, uh, this is body horror without any of the actual body horror. This is fucking, this is dork. It's right? terrifying. So Kyle, yeah, Kyle, this is, this has to be in like, 
So Kyle manages to love me despite my interests that I'm pretty sure are half exactly his interest and half anthema and terrifying to him. So this had to be like on your squick scale. I was getting very squeamish. The whole idea of putting somebody into a tank just to pull their essence into data, it just just makes me feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, this was really on the very limits of what I was surprised Marvel would put in a not max title. Now, I know that Dylan is the other ex-zombie that brings some AOA to the table. So my question for you, Dylan, is when you saw the kennel, could you think of anything else but the breeding pits and the culling pits? No, it was exactly just like that. Um, can sometimes be repetitive when it comes to X-Men stories and dystopian futures or realities, but sometimes it is nice to see a little bit of, or maybe it's just kind of neat to see a consistency in certain aspects of torture. Yeah, that there are just certain horrors that will always occur. I very much agree. Now, I think stuff's about to get like, I don't want to like, I don't know. So everything's about to break down and for a couple of pages into a few short scenes and then come to a screeching conclusion. And without too many spoilers, Jonah, I don't know about you, but when I turned the page and I saw Black Tom, I'm assuming that's Black Tom, right? Like, it can't be Groot, so that's gotta be Black Tom, right? It's the only tree person I can think of. And he's got a beard? Like, it could be Black Tom, right? So I turn the page and I see Magneto in green. So maybe he's like rocking it out for his daughter, Lorna. I see Zorn. And we did see Zorn on another page. Zorn was in the background sitting with another Zorn. Don't get it. In one of the Krakoan gateway scenes in House of X. So this isn't the first time we've seen Zorn. But when I turned this page and I saw this, my first thought was, here comes tomorrow, the conclusion of New X-Men. This says a lot about this issue. Is that Black Tom? Who knows? Father Forest, Yvonne? I don't know who the hell that is. Sure, whatever. It's Wood God. No. No. <laughs> no. We Maybe don't talk. Maybe it's Mondo. Ooh, they did just say that Mondo is coming back. Whoever it is, it's Father Forest of the Greenland. We have Logan, <laughs> who's wearing an X-Men belt, but contrary to what Magneto was wearing in House of X, he's wearing green, but there, he was not wearing an X-Belt in this. Did he renounce Xavier at some point? I don't know. What's going on with him? It's just so many more questions, so much more of what is going on. And of course, Logan survives because Logan survives everything. That's not really much of a shock. But having these other three here are they now in charge? Are they the ones that are going to save mutant kind now after this war? Well, Wolverine says the old man's waiting. Is the old man Xavier? I do like that Jonah brought up that Wolverine has the X-Men belt because this is the first time in this future that we are actually seeing this because Cardinal and Rasputin do not have X-belts on either. That's a great catch. I also want to point out that there are slight differences in Magneto's costume. It's not just the green, but his helmet is slightly different, as are his chest plate. His chest plate in House of X is different and comes to a rounded point with a buckle. This comes to a triangular point. He's got a V-neck on. Yeah, Magneto switched into <laughs> his low-key V-neck. 
And I am just so eager to investigate the fact that there's only like 11,000 mutants left. About 8,000 mutants live in the Benevolence, a converted transit station located on the fringe of Shi'ar space. Then, just about 1,800 mutants live on Chandelar, the homeworld of the Shi'ar people, birds as they were. And then, Asteroid K has eight mutants left. They tell us there were ten, but after the death of Silabel and Percival, we're down to eight. Hold up. Black Tom, Wood God, Father Mondo, Treeface, Zorn, Magneto, Wolverine, Rasputin, Cardinal. That's six. Who are the other two? Besides Old Man. Because we Whoever that's referring to. Provided Old Man is a mutant. What if it's Moira? I'm barely being silly. It does just say mutant. It doesn't say non-mutants living there. Yeah. So we don't know that there's no non-mutants. This whole idea that mutancy could be whittled back down to such a small number. I was just here. It was called the 198 and I hated it. I'm strangely back again. This feels very familiar. There's the chick who looks like the Leopard Queen. There's some Nimrods running around. People are killing mutants left and right. Xavier's up to some weird shit. Oh my gosh, it is the 198 again. (laughs) Yeah, is this the 198 again? I I didn't even think of that, but it totally is. Now, this brings us all to the unreal weird ending we get who i keep calling space xavier the weird face from the earlier page i believe it was the second page of the story the weird face all the way in the future a thousand years from now the final power of 10 and this weird little alien is having a very conversation with mini nimrod who's just flying around being real real chill and at one point says who at the time could have seen the surprising end of the human machine war little nimrod says homo sapiens so good to be done with all that. Space Xavier, better known as the librarian, says, are we done with them? Can we ever really be done with the past? After all, after all, that's what a legacy is. And it's why we keep dinosaur bones around. What the fuck? What does that even mean? That's not, that's not equivalent. That's not the same thing as keeping a dinosaur bone versus you keeping a human. And are we supposed to think that Two mutants just gatewayed into this biome on the last page? Is that what the last panel is? It kind of seems like that, but I I felt like it kind of seemed like a little zoo and it almost looked like Adam and Eve. Right, because there's all the God stuff on the page too, but isn't the whole point of this the idea that theology is being removed from the mutant lexicon? Or is the idea that theology is being transmuted for a thousand years and reinserted into the mutant lexicon after a rebirth of dominance of the species? Yes. Who knows? Little blue Xavier, whatever. Exactly that, Xavier. Um, He's taking off a helmet that has an X on it in the first few panels. And... It, that makes me wonder if that very, that second page of this book where it talks about year one, year 10, year 100, and year 1000, are all of those supposed to be versions of Xavier? And maybe in that year 100, the old man is not Xavier, but actually maybe, the, yeah, the Yeah, what if Xavier's is. Inrod? Exactly. What if Xavier, I've been wondering, what if all of those are the faces of Xavier? And the fact that Silabel is literally looking at Space Xavier, who's hanging out with Nimrod. Like, I just... Do the mutants and the machines combine, and is that a surprising ending? I just... What the hell is going on? I am... I have more questions after Powers of X. The book that they said is going to make us look back at House of X and go, oh, that makes more... No, I'm more confused. 
Yeah, no, that didn't. That just didn't add more conversation. This feels like I was given uh, a new puzzle after struggling to figure out the pieces for the first one and told, no, 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 no. See, once you figure out this picture, you'll get the other picture. But if I can't figure out both pictures, how am I supposed to get the other picture anyway? <laughs> yeah. So before we close out this episode of Powerhouse, Kyle, we're two out of 12 issues into this. Where is your brain a sixth of the way into this powerhouse of 10X? There's a lot of directions that it can go, and I'm excited to see where they go. I'm nervous to see what happens to the characters that we know and all these new characters. Um, oh, geez. I'm hoping that it's not as scary as it's looking right now. Knowing John Hickman, I'm pretty sure it's only going to get far more terrifying and that this was like the very tip of the uh, frightening berg. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Dylan, <laughs> we're a sixth of the way into this journey. Where's your head at? I am still just enjoying the ride. I'm so confused, so unsettled, so afraid and happy. I, I don't, I'm all over the place. And I feel like that's the only way to be with the few answers we've gotten and the infinitely more questions. Jonah, this is your first live X-Men event. How are you enjoying it one-sixth of the way in? Uh, I want to liken this to that one famous comic meme of the dog sitting in fire and saying, this is fine. And while I don't think this is actually uh, them setting X-Men on fire and going down in flames, because I think these are two fantastic issues, even though I don't know what's going on, that's still my emotions about it, because that's exactly it. I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm strapped into the ride vehicle and just been like, okay, let's just go on this ride. Let's see what's going to happen, because I have no idea. And so I'm just going to patiently wait until I can figure things out. And I find myself with more concern, excitement, questions, and desire to be a part of the X community than I've ever felt. I've never enjoyed two issues of X-Men more. And that's not to say they're my two favorite issues of X-Men of all time. But I've never enjoyed being a live part of something like this as much as I enjoy this. And I want to thank you guys so much for coming out for another special Thursday bonus episode of Uncanny X's for Podcast, Powerhouse Edition. And until we return to keep looking at mutants kyle where can everybody find you online you can find me on both twitter and instagram at drantis82 amazeballs and dylan where can everybody find you everybody can find me on instagram at warpath underscore dylan and you can always find me at my facebook group house of x and jonah where can everybody find you not taking a bath with Nimrod. You can actually find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Ravino and at Jonah.Ravino. Nico, where can everybody find you? Recovering from that. You can find me here on HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, where my husband Kevo and I take a look at all sorts of fascinating things. We have special guests like owner of the network Joey, the brilliant comic artist Tori Sheehan, and the incredible Jonah show up from time to time. So you definitely want to check those out. You can also hear me on Now and Again, where I talk about pop music with my childhood best friend, Chris Podcast. We spent the summer talking about Carly Rae Jepsen, but now we're back to all things now. You can check out my music over on Facebook at facebook.com slash action duo, where I make throwback R&B. Or you can check out my super cool, super inclusive comic, Kid Riot Comics, over at kidriotcomics.com. Kid Riot, Kid Riot, Kid Riot. You can check me out on Instagram being like half naked most of the time over at Nico Action and I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. And until we return to the halls of Krakoa, you've forgotten that machines have no soul and that the humans lost theirs a long time ago.